makes sense. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, let me invite you to turn to John, the Gospel of John. We've been going verse by verse through this incredible gospel, this Gospel of John. And we're going to be looking at verse 16 this morning out of chapter 15. So John 15, verse 16, I might touch just for a moment on verse 17 as we bring this particular section of Scripture to a close. The title for this morning's sermon is Chosen to Bear Fruit. Chosen to bear fruit. Let's look at verse 16 and 17, where we read Jesus speaking, says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another." Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray for continued insight through your word, the words of Jesus, and these couple of verses that would help us to see that we have been chosen to bear fruit. God, show us what that means this morning so that we can live how you want us to live, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a whole lot of people around Thanksgiving who like to watch football, And the National Football League, also known as the NFL, hosts a draft every year. And the purpose of the draft is to allow for each one of the 32 teams in the NFL to select players, new players, that will be added to their team. There are seven rounds, and each team gets one pick each round. There's always a ton of hype and excitement around the draft because it provides a new start for the next season. And every team dreams that with the new talent on board, maybe that will be their year to win the Super Bowl. And so there are countless hours of study and preparation that go into each selection to assure that the team makes the right choice. I mean, you typically only have one first-round draft pick, and you wouldn't want to waste it on a player who can't really produce results. Unfortunately, each year, there proves to be at least one or sometimes two big busts. A bust would be when a team selects a player high in the draft order, only to find out that that player does not contribute very well on the field. One of the most famous busts of recent years is Johnny Manziel, also known as Johnny Football. Manziel played for Texas A&M, He was an instant sensation, and in his first year at college football, he passed for over 3,700 yards with 26 touchdowns in the air, and he rushed for another 1,400 yards with 21 touchdowns on the ground. Now, a lot of the ladies in here who don't follow football are like, who cares? (laughs) All the guys are like, yeah, that's my boy, Johnny Football. Nobody can stop him, right? He was the first freshman player ever to receive the Heisman Trophy, the largest uh, accolade trophy in college football. Needless to say, the Cleveland Browns had high hopes when they selected Johnny Manziel in the first round in 2014. You guessed it, his NFL career was a disaster. And after two short years, Johnny Manziel was dismissed from the Browns football team. Cleveland took on a risk when they drafted Johnny Football, and Johnny Football responded by becoming Johnny Failure. What is Johnny Manziel doing today? 
you might ask, well, he's selling insurance. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that you were chosen to bear fruit. There are no rounds, first round, second round, third round, in the doctrine of election. And you are not selected based on your performance in college. Thank God. You were chosen from eternity past, and you were chosen by a sovereign God who set his grace upon you while you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And in the doctrine of election, there are no busts. There are no Johnny failures. Every person who is elected by God will produce fruit. You will not be a failure because you, in Christ, are an overcomer. You will walk in victory. You will succeed in the Christian life. You will bear fruit, and it will be a fruit that lasts. You know why? Because God doesn't make any mistakes. God doesn't make any wrong choices. God doesn't take any risks. He chooses whom he chooses for his own glory. And when he chooses you, he transforms you. And when he transforms you, you become a fruit producer. And the fruit that you produce abides. You were chosen for a reason. You were not chosen to sit on the bench. You were not chosen to stand on the sidelines. You were not chosen to stand by and watch. You were chosen to practice and to play hard. And God has put you out on the field, and he's not embarrassed of the choice that he made of you because he will work in you, and he will work through you so that you will produce fruit even the type of fruit that you have no idea that you were even capable of. God's power in you, Christian, will thrive. God's power in you will produce results. God's power in you will sustain you in life's hardest trials. God's power in you will bear fruit. And so this morning's sermon is very simple Just two points today from John 15, 16. The first point is this, you are chosen by God. And the second point we'll see in a little bit is you're appointed to bear fruit. First, let's look at the fact that we were, number one, first major heading, we were chosen by God. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, would be this, you did not choose him. Again, verse 15 says, excuse me, verse 16 says, Jesus speaking, says, you did not choose me. So that's our blank. You did not choose him. As Jesus is talking to his disciples on this last night before he was crucified, he simply wanted to remind them that their salvation was all by grace. Their salvation was not by works, and it wasn't by their own choice. Their salvation was not by status. Their salvation was not based on their heritage. Their salvation was not based on their profession. A lot of fishermen There was a tax collector, a zealot, and a thief. Their salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in who? In Christ alone. Thank you. The disciples did not choose to be saved. And for the record here, Judas had already left the upper room, so Jesus is talking only to the eleven. And not only did they choose to be, not only did they not choose to be saved, but they didn't even choose to be disciples. Not a single disciple volunteered. Not a single disciple asked to be a disciple. 
Not a single disciple was coming to Jesus. Rather, Jesus was coming to them. Jesus called Peter and Andrew while they were casting their nets on the Sea of Galilee. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax booth, he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. There were lots of people standing around watching John the Baptist baptize people in the River Jordan. John the Baptist then looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. When they heard him say this, two of the disciples stopped what they were doing and they followed Jesus. Jesus went to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. And he followed. Jesus saw Nathanael, who was also called Bartholomew, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You see, not a single disciple chose Jesus. He chose them. And the same is true of Christ's followers today. Not a single Christian chooses Jesus. He chose you. Do you know why a disciple or a Christian did not choose Jesus? And the answer is because you cannot. You cannot choose God. He must choose us. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 3, 10 and 11. This is why it is that you cannot choose God, that you wouldn't have chosen God, that you did not choose God. Romans 3, verse 10 and 11 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So this passage is clearly teaching us there's no one righteous, no one would understand the gospel, no one would understand on their own who Jesus is and why he came and that they even need to follow him. They have zero understanding because they are not yet been enlightened. There's no one who is righteous, not Martin Luther, not Hudson Taylor, not Billy Graham. There is not a single reformer or a single missionary or a single pastor or evangelist who has ever chosen God. They were all chosen by God. And the reason that we didn't choose God is because we can't. We're talking here about the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is the doctrine that explains that our will is not neutral, but tainted with sin to the degree that we are totally unable to cry out to God for help if left to ourselves. We would never even want to. You understand, it's not that you wanted to and you couldn't. You didn't even want to. Like, I would never choose to go to a ballet. Why? Because I don't want to. It doesn't matter if it's Swan Lake or Cinderella or Don Quixote whoever that is. You know why? Because I just can't. Like, I just cannot go to a ballet. I'm just not good enough to go to a ballet. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she has some ballet goodness in her, so she might be able to, but I just can't because I don't want to. And in an infinitely greater way, you can't choose God and you wouldn't even want to. I mean, the Bible teaches that the corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam at the fall 
to all mankind. And so total depravity emphasizes that men and women are categorically born into sin, and therefore we are sinners by nature and not just by practice. And because of this, man has no ability to save himself. And man's will is not free to choose God, but rather man is a slave to his sin. He is in bondage to his sin, and there is no way out except through the sovereign grace of God. And there is a devastating impact of sin on each one of us as sinners. As a result of our sinful nature, every part of you, your mind and your will and your emotions and your flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of your being, including who you are and what you do. Uh, To be totally depraved means that there is a complete inability of a person to please God on your own apart from His power working in you. In fact, turn with me if you will to Romans 8. Maybe you're still there in Romans 3 where we see there's none righteous, no, not one. Look over at Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and following says, For those who live according to the flesh, by the way, that's you and me prior to coming to Christ, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what cannot. You just can't. I mean, your heart and your mind are set on your own sin. You cannot submit to God's law. In fact, Romans 8, 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so what we're seeing here is that the Bible says that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The Bible teaches that you were born into your sin and that you have a sinful nature. And before you were saved, you were captive to your sin and you loved your sin and you suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness in your mind and your thinking was hostile to God. And in your sinful condition, you did not subject yourself to God's law or God's word. And any attempt to please God was futile. Your best works were but filthy rags. And so, no, you did not choose God, but as Jesus says again in John 15, 16, he says, I chose you. That's our next blank. You did not choose God, but he did what? He chose you. Now, I understand that Jesus is talking to his disciples, the 11, but I believe that this passage is transcendent to go beyond that which would only be for his 11 but would be a little bit of a prototype for every single Christ follower. That this is an example for each and every one of us, not just for the 11 in the room with him, or now they've already walked maybe over towards the Garden of Gethsemane, but I believe that he chose you. In fact, the phrase, he chose us, ought to be very comforting to the believer because we know how vile and undeserving we are as slaves to our sin and enemies of the cross. But if you are in Christ today, then you must know that he chose you first. He picked you. He wanted you. He loved you. He regenerated you. 
He gave you new life. He calls you his own. He no longer calls you a servant, as we read earlier in this chapter. He has called you his friend. You have been adopted into the family of God. All the spiritual blessings of the heavenly realms are yours in Christ Jesus. He has an inheritance for you, which is imperishable, undefiled, and it will never fade away. He chose you. That's exactly what we read over in Ephesians. If you want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we read this exact same thing in the broader context of the doctrine of election when he clearly says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God did not choose anyone because they were holy, and so they deserve to be chosen by God. In fact, we have all fallen short of the glory of God because we're all sinners. The wages of our sin is death. There was no obligation of God to choose anyone, but the fact that he freely chose some is a testimony to his great and glorious grace. In fact, whenever we talk about the doctrine of election, there's oftentimes a lot of arguing about whether we chose him or he chose us, and hopefully this text of John 15, 16 clarifies it a little bit, as well as the other cross-references we're looking at. But it's always interesting to me how often we argue about the free will of man, but but few people ever even think about the free will of God. I appreciate James White, well-known apologist, who uh, wrote a book years ago called The Potter's Freedom, who discusses how while our will is enslaved to our sin, God's will is perfectly free to choose whomever he will. So we're arguing a lot sometimes from a human point of view, did I choose God or did God choose me? But we forget about from God's point of view, he doesn't, he's not tainted with sin. He could just do whatever he wants and he does whatever he pleases and he choose whoever he will for his own glory. This is exactly what Paul teaches in Romans 9, 21. Has not the potter, or excuse me, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So you go into the shop and you see the potter using some clay. He's just saying, hey, he can make whatever he wants. And some pieces of those clay that he makes are for honorable use. Some are for dishonorable use. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, the potter, who is almighty God, the creator of the universe, has the right to do with you what he wants. And if you're in Christ today, we're learning that Jesus is saying, and the Father is saying, or at least it's said about the Father from the Ephesians 1-4 passage from Paul, that he chose you. He chose you. He decided to form out of the dust a human being that he would choose to eventually dwell in with his own presence. And this idea of God choosing us instead of us choosing him is clearly illustrated in the fact that he even chose you before you were born. I mean, you, you couldn't, you know, in real life being born, you're not able to choose your mom or choose your dad or choose your family. You're just born. And spiritually, it's the same way. You're not able to necessarily choose what's going to happen or what family you're going to be in. No, God chooses you. 
This is what we're reading this morning. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. Ephesians 1, 4 again, and he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, this verse 4 of Ephesians 1 answers two questions. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the first question, your next blank, we could ask, well, when did he choose us? When did he choose us? Well, this verse says he chose us before the foundation of the world. That means he chose you before you were born. He chose you before you were conceived. He chose you before Abraham, Moses, and David walked on the earth. He chose you before the foundation of the world. That means he chose you before creation. You have been in the mind of God from eternity past, and he has predetermined to choose you and to make you his own. We're talking here about being chosen by God is what some theologians call the doctrine of election, to be elected by God. If you are one of his chosen ones, then you are one of his elect. Let me give you a definition of the doctrine of election from uh, Professor Wayne Grudem, well-known theologian, who says this, quote, election is the act of God by which, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ, those who he graciously regenerates, saves, and sanctifies. I remember wrestling a lot through this doctrine of election as I was coming of age in high school, where I grew up in a church that would be classified as Arminian, and I would read passages like what we're looking at this morning of Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans 9 and even this verse out of John 15, 16 and so many other verses. And I would just struggle with, well, well why is all this emphasis on you just got to say this prayer and you got to choose God? If there's so many passages that say, well, God chose us. And so I remember struggling with that. And I would take those questions to my youth pastor and I would say, hey, pastor, how come, you know, you say we need to choose God, but God's word says that he chose us. And he's like, oh, Adam, it's so easy. It's so easy. See, this is what happens. God looks down the corridors of time. Who's ever heard this argument? God looks down the corridors of time, and based on the fact that he sees in the future who will and will not choose him, then based on that foreknowledge, then he goes back in eternity past and he chooses you. To which I would respond like, oh, okay, thank you. Thanks for explaining that. Oh, that makes sense. And then I would go home and read these passages again and be like, that didn't make any sense. I don't see any corridors of time in my Bible. I don't see anything in my Bible that says because he knew in the future that I would choose him, he would go back in the past and somehow elect me. No, 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 no. Listen to me. Foreknowledge is not passive but it's active, because this is where a lot of Arminians get hung up, is they view foreknowledge as some type of passive knowledge that God just knows what will happen out there, but he has nothing to do with it. Well, turn with me to Romans 8, 29. I want you to see that word foreknowledge used in a couple of contexts to help give you a better biblical sense of the word foreknowledge, because it is a biblical word, and it's important that we understand it in its context. But notice Romans chapter 8, verse 29, right in the middle of what we call the golden chain of redemption. We read this, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So I'm trying to help you understand that the word foreknowledge and predestined go hand in hand. 
They're, they're of the same type of understanding that it's those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so what we're saying is this, the view of God looking down the corridors of time does not reckon with the fact that God created time and therefore all events in time. So he does not look down through history, but rather he looks at history as a complete whole. And apart from such a weighty philosophical objection, however, we could notice here in Romans 8, 29, it does not say that God foreknew certain decisions on our part. It does not say that God foresees our faith on the base, and on that basis he predestines us. It says nothing of the sort. Instead, what Romans 8, 29 says is that he foreknew us, that he predestined us, that we are his chosen people. We are those that he elected to save. Foreknowledge does not mean that God is watching and waiting to see what we're going to do, and then somehow he goes back in the past and predestines us to be his own. Not only that, but turn with me to Acts 2.23, another place where we see the word foreknowledge used in conjunction with the idea of being predestined. Acts 2.23, we understand from this verse that just as God foreknew us, well, guess what? He foreknew us in the same way that he foreknew the plan of salvation. Let me just ask you about that real quick. Does the plan of salvation, is that something God foreknew because he waited for it to unfold on its own? Or did he foreknow the plan of salvation because he predetermined the plan of salvation, which is what we're reading in Acts 2.23. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, again, what Luke is saying as he writes Acts 2.23 here is that God had a definite plan, and it's called the plan of redemption. And God had a definite plan, and it was the plan that Jesus would be nailed to the cross. And that didn't happen by accident. And it didn't happen as God sitting back passively, just knowing that it would happen. He actually ordained that it would happen. And just like he ordained that redemption would happen, just like it happened, then we understand now that word foreknowledge has to have this more of a predestined flavor to it because it is a predetermining that God does. And so all that to say, your salvation didn't happen by chance, just like the cross didn't happen by chance. You and I were foreknown by God, if you're in Christ today, because he elected us. We were chosen by God. And this may make us wonder, obviously, about, well, what about those who are not elected by God? And if you are saved, it is because God elected you. So our responsibility is to not fully understand it to the same degree that God does, because it blows our mind every time we look at it. But all we can do is just be like, hey, you know what? I have a responsibility, and my responsibility is not to say to God, well, what about this person? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that that's our responsibility, to say, well, what about this person and that person? But you know what the Bible does say your responsibility is? Preach the gospel to this person and that person. If you want to be active doing something instead of worrying about it, then how about being active, preaching the gospel freely to all men and to let all men know that if they would repent and come to Christ, then God would save them. 
We're never going to fully understand this doctrine to our liking, though I think it's clear in Scripture, as you're hearing me attempt to explain to you this morning. But I do love the picture sometimes of that idea that, you know, you, you die and you go to heaven because you're in Christ and you walk in to heaven and you see the big archway and it says, you know, whosoever will come, come. And you're kind of thinking like, well, I'm the whosoever, so I'm going to come in. And then you kind of walk through the arch and you turn around and you look at the arch on this side and it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So it's kind of like on this side of the arch, you're like, well, okay, I see the gospel. I understand the gospel as God is awakening you, regenerating you, helping you see your need for him, transforming you. This is all taking place in that second of salvation. And then when you walk into heaven, if, as it were, you could look back and say, oh, you know what? God determined that. He, he predetermined that before the foundation of the world. That, that wasn't me in and of my own electing God. That was because I was elected by God. And so we're saying that our responsibility isn't necessarily to cause everybody to understand this to the greatest degree, though we're, we're not shying away from it. We're just trying to be faithful to say, here's what the Bible says. I know that I'm saved, and it wasn't because I chose him. He chose me. And so I'm going to call others to repent. I mean, I love how someone asked Spurgeon, who was a renowned Calvinist, why don't you just preach to the elect? So they asked Spurgeon this question, if you believe this this doctrine of election, why don't you just preach only to those who are elect, to which he answered, you may remember, quote, well, if you'll run around and pull up everybody's shirt tails so that I can see if they have an E stamped on their back, I will. So maybe that's what you should do, run around, pull up everybody's shirt tails. Don't do that, kids. Don't be pulling up people's shirt tails, right? But the idea is like, if we knew who was elect and who wasn't, maybe that would be something to consider, but we don't. We don't know. And so our job is Acts 17.30. Acts 17.30 says the times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So I believe that that's our mission on earth. We just call all people everywhere to repent. I think I'd like to move to a second question, not only the fact that that, uh, that we asked that first question about when did he choose us? I'm trying to make the case he chose us before the foundation of the world. I think maybe a second and equal question that should gain our attention this morning is why? Why did he choose us? Not only when did he choose us, but why did he choose us? Well, he chose you because he wants to sanctify you. He chose you because he wants to be glorified in you living a holy and a blameless life. I mean, the rest of that Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, says that we should be holy and blameless before him. So it says, hey, I chose you before the foundation for a reason and for a purpose. And that reason and that purpose is so that you would be holy and blameless before him. To be holy is to be set apart, which means you walk in obedience. God shows his love to us by saving us, and we show our love to God by walking in obedience to his word. Remember the context of the John 15, 16, where he says, if you love me, John 14, 15 says, you will keep my commandments. John 15, 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so we understand that part of what God expects of us as those who are chosen in him is that we walk in holiness 
and blamelessly as those who are keeping Christ's commandments. We are to be holy and we are to be blameless. To be blameless, to, to be holy, by the way, set apart, you're made holy by Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. And yet at the same time, we're pursuing holiness in how we live and we're pursuing a blameless life. And the word blameless carries the idea that there is nothing that anyone can accuse you of. And do you know why no one can accuse you of anything? Because you've sought forgiveness. And in your life, when you stumble and fall, you ask for God's forgiveness and you ask for that person's forgiveness so that they cannot hold that against you any longer. Thus, you are now blameless because whatever sin you committed, you've confessed before God and when appropriate, you've confessed to somebody else. And in that way, we're pursuing the holiness of God and this condition of being blameless before God. Maybe we shouldn't spend so much time debating the doctrine of election as much as we should be focused on a life that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ by how we live. I mean, as a pastor, I would rather somebody come into my office and say, Adam, the glories of salvation and the wonder of salvation and the mystery of salvation, I may never fully understand. But I do understand that Jesus calls me to bear fruit. Can you help me do that? I would much rather talk to that person for an hour about how they could love and obey and bear fruit than to argue back and forth about Calvinism and Arminianism, though I think those are extremely important doctrines. And again, if you're confused where I stand, I'm a staunch five-point Calvinist, all right? I don't say that much from the pulpit, but that's where I stand. But I, I would much rather spend my time to say, hey, you know what? How are you loving your wife? How are you loving your kids? Tell me where you're at in the purity in your heart right now. Tell me where you're at in giving generously to others who are in need. Tell me where you're at in putting off the deeds of the flesh and being renewed in the spirit of your mind and putting on Christ's likeness. Because while I care a whole great deal about understanding the doctrine of election, I also care a very great deal about people doing what we're now moving into, which is point number two. We're appointed to do what? To bear fruit. We're appointed to bear fruit. Again, Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You were chosen by Jesus and appointed by him to bear fruit. The word appointed here in verse 16 means that God put you into a particular location or into a particular place in order that you would bear fruit. So think of it as he appointed me to a certain mission. You know what that means? Wherever you are and whatever you are doing, he put you there that you would bear fruit for him. And God didn't necessarily put you there for you. He put you there for him. And sometimes he puts us in hard places. And sometimes he puts us in places we don't prefer. You may not like living in California. You may not like living in your neighborhood. You may not like living with your schoolmates or your classmates in school every day. You may not like your place of work or even the type of job that you do. But God chose you and appointed you that in that place, on that given day, that you would bear fruit. 
That word appointed also means to assign to someone a certain task or function. Now, we all may live in different places, work at different places, and go to different schools and different places, but we all have the same job, and that job is to bear fruit. We are to grow and to produce fruit, and we are to experience God's grace and His power working through us to accomplish something that we could never do by ourselves. We are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, and we are to bear the fruit of good works, and we are to bear the fruit of righteousness. And we're talking here now about the doctrine of sanctification. If the first point was about the doctrine of election or salvation. Now we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification or living out your faith. Again, Dr. Grudem in defining sanctification says it this way, quote, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. According to Louis Burkhoff, he states, about sanctification, quote, may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. Can I just give you my own definition of sanctification? It is your Christian walk. That's what sanctification is. It's your Christian walk. It's Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's 1 John 2.6. Whoever says he abides in him, that's in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's 1 Peter 2.21. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. You would think this doctrine of sanctification, sometimes referred to as progressive sanctification for this particular aspect, because of our constant progress in our walk with Christ, you would think that this is a clear doctrine that Christians don't debate over. So over here, you might be like, okay, well, I understand they debate over who chose who, but I can't understand why they would debate over our Christian walk. Do Christians really debate over that? You bet they do. And they might debate about that one more than they do the first one. And it drives me crazy. But that's what people debate about because they start to get too smart for their own britches. And they start trying to figure out a way that they don't have to do it or why others don't do it. So I want to give you two main views of sanctification. There are many others that I will not be mentioning, such as Wesleyan sanctification, which points to perfectionism, Pentecostal sanctification, which includes a second blessing, and Keswick sanctification, which is to let go and let God. I don't even have time to mention those. I just want to mention two main ones as I see it would be this, lordship sanctification and non-lordship sanctification. Now, some people will term these, uh, coin these terms as lordship salvation and non-lordship salvation. I choose to use the word sanctification because I think that's a better descriptor of what we're talking about. Let's start with non-lordship. Your next blank there, a non-lordship sanctification. And in your notes, you see here a little um, definition of that would be no fruit necessary. So back in the early 90s, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. When I was considering coming to the Master's Seminary, I grew up in Georgia. I never really heard of MacArthur. And so, I mean, I heard him on the radio. People asked me, you know, what, what did you think about John MacArthur? And I'm like, ah, mm, a little long. 
It's a little dry, but he's a great Bible teacher. And someone said, oh, you're thinking about going to the master's seminary? Why? And I'm like, because he's a good Bible teacher. And I care about getting the Bible right. And they're like, oh, well, you need to start with this book. Here's one of his most controversial books called The Gospel According to Jesus. I got it, read the book within a week or two just because it was an easy read. And I thought it was really elementary. It's really simple. To be a Christian, you repent of your sin, you believe in Jesus, and you live for him. I'm like, awesome. Why, why are people arguing about this? But they were, big time. And so he wrote a second book to follow that called The Gospel According to the Apostles. And he had a lot of massive critics about what some people said about this form of what we're calling non-lordship versus lordship sanctification. And one of his biggest critics was out of Dallas Theological Seminary. His name was Zane Hodges, who wrote a book called Absolutely Free. And Zane Hodges had the opinion that you don't have to bear fruit as a believer. And so in that book, Absolutely Free, he's like, hey, we're free to be saved without any works ever, even as a part of our sanctification. The way I understand it, and maybe I'll just give you a couple of quotes from Zane Hodges, again, who would be, I, I would say, the leader of the free grace movement of the non-lordship position, which was defined well in the 90s. He says this in his book, Zane Hodges, again, quote, a believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. God is guaranteed that he will not disown those who thus abandon the faith. Those who have once believed are secure forever, even if they turn away. That's kind of scary to me to hear quotes like that from somebody because it goes right against 1 John 2.19, right? These people went out from us because they were never part of us. Here's another quote by Zane Hodges, quote, spiritual fruit is not guaranteed in the Christian life. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, well, has this brother never been in John 15? Like, what in the world? He says, spiritual fruit is not guaranteed in the Christian life. Some Christians spend their lives in a barren wasteland of defeat, confusion, and every kind of evil. And again, he says, quote, it is possible to experience a moment of faith that guarantees heaven for eternity, then to turn away permanently and live a life that is utterly barren of any spiritual fruit. Genuine believers might even cease to name the name of Christ or confess Christianity. Now, the problem with that view is that it just simply is not biblical. I mean, we've just been studying in this very chapter, John 15, verse 5 and 6, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him shall bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch that withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus also said in Matthew 7, 19 and 20, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. 1 John 2, 19, I've already mentioned they went out from us because they were never part of us. And so I would say that this view of non-lordship sanctification or salvation, however you want to call it, is not a biblical view. Jesus saved us so that we can serve him. Jesus saved us so that we can walk in obedience. Jesus saved us that we would bear fruit. And so the other view I want to share with you about progressive sanctification, we'll call it lordship 
sanctification, which is simply progressing. That's your next blank, lordship, sanctification. It's progressing toward Christ's likeness. Again, a systematic theologian's definition would be sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. That was Wayne Grudem. So if you are to be like Christ in your life, then you are to be bearing the fruit of Christ. And so when we talk about this doctrine, we're talking about somebody who is going to be bearing fruit. Now, the question often comes up, well, who's, who's responsible for the fruit bearing? Is that God's role or is that your role? And my answer would be both. When it comes to salvation, it's 100% God. We call that monergism. It is a work of God by sovereign grace, saving you nothing to do of yourself. He chose you. Synergism, on the other hand, is now God is working together with you in order that you would be progressing in your sanctification. So I would say God has a role in your sanctification and you have a role in sanctification. What is God's role in sanctification? Number one, extending grace to us. That passage talks about how the grace of God brings salvation to us so that we would also be training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. So the same grace that saves you is the same grace that trains you to renounce your sin. Another role of God in sanctification, number two, is that God is praying for us. He is praying for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. We know that Jesus at the session is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, Romans 8, 26 and 8, 34. What also is God involved in as far as our sanctification? Well, he's involved in enlightening us. Number three, he enlightens us. This means simply that he opens up our mind so that we can understand the hope to which he has called us. He makes you understand. That's God's role in sanctification for you to understand certain things about Scripture, what it says you should do, shouldn't do. You've got to be enlightened by God. Number four, we also see that God is empowering us. He is empowering us. Second Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So God is giving us power in our daily lives that we can walk with him. Not only that, but God is directing us through the scripture. God is, number six, disciplining us. So that's his part in our sanctification. We get off course. He disciplines the ones that he loves. That's because he loves us and wants to help us. Listen, I have five kids. I know a lot about discipline. I don't always do it perfectly and as patiently as I should, but my goodness, I'm thankful for seeing the principle of discipline work in my life when I was a child and seeing it work in the lives of our children as we're disciplining them and praying that God would show love and grace to them. That's part of how he helps us grow. That's how we can help our kids grow. Number seven, he also rewards us. He rewards us that as we're being sanctified with the faith that he gives us, that he rewards those who seek him. That's all of God's role in sanctification. But remember, sanctification is synergistic. It's both God at work and you at work. And so what's your role in sanctification? 
Well, you're to be bearing fruit, and it's a fruit that abides. That means it's a fruit that remains. That means it's a fruit that lasts. We're not talking about wood or hay or stubble. We're talking about true Christian fruit here that you're responsible. What does that look like for you? Number one, reading the Bible. I love Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Number one act that you're responsible for in your own sanctification is be in the Word of God. You would be shocked how many times I meet with counselees and I meet with young men and older men for lunch, and I just say, hey, man, tell me where you're at in your quiet time right now. Tell me, where, where are you reading in Scripture, like, right now? And they're like, you mean right now? And I'm like, yeah, did you read the Bible today? Well, not today. Well, how about this week? What have you been reading this week? You mean this week? Yeah, I mean this week. What have you been reading this week? Well, it's been a really busy week. Well, what have you, I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, no wonder you're struggling with X, Y, Z when you're not even in the Bible on a daily basis. And not only are we to be reading it, number two says we ought to be meditating on Scripture. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it, then you will have prosperity and success. We've got to be thinking about it and talking about it and discussing it. You know what I found my boys like to do? They like to talk about a good football game. When you watch a good football game, we talk about it before the game. We talk about it during the game. And after the game, they keep going on and on and on about, oh, this play, and you remember this play and that and this and the other. And I'm like, you know what? That's how we ought to be treating the Word of God. We read it. We talk about it. And we just keep talking. Oh, I like this verse. Ooh, yeah, you like that verse? I like this verse over here. This verse and this verse and this verse fits with this verse. We got to just talk about it, think about it, work it through over and over and over again. Number three, our role in sanctification is we need to be praying. God's praying for us. He's interceding for us. We need to be praying without ceasing. Number four, we need to be confessing our sin. I think this is the number one issue maybe apart from reading your Bible daily, that I see people struggling with all the time who are not willing to humble themselves before God and before their spouse and before their parents or their children or a friend. They are just simply, it's just so hard. It is so hard. And yet God calls us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I'm so thankful that we have a God who promises to forgive. He promises. It's not like you have to be like, well, if I confess it, I'm not sure what he's going to do. No, you can with God that what God's word says about that is sin, and you acknowledge it, and you confess it before him, you're forgiven before him. In addition to confessing, I like to emphasize repentance, which is number five, putting off and putting on. We want to put off our old self, we want to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we want to put on our new self. That's what God's called us to do, daily living, putting off, being renewed, and putting on. Number six, we need to be denying ourselves. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's like an athlete that's denying himself maybe of extra sleep if he gets up early in the morning to work out. Maybe it's that athlete who denies himself of another cookie. Did you deny yourself over Thanksgiving, over that second piece of pumpkin pie? I've seen a lot of no's. I didn't deny myself. 
You know, but the athlete who's training for the Olympics, they have to deny their diet and sometimes extra rest or any risky activity that could injure them before their competition. I just love that. You know what? I'm not going to take the risk. Should I watch this movie? There's been a couple times in our house this last week where we were going to watch various movies about the holidays, and then we're like, oh, we're not going to actually watch that movie. We forgot that movie has some things in there that we don't want to be watching with our family. I mean, we must have done that at least two or three times. You know what? I'm thankful that we have the right just to say, you know what, I'm not, I don't have to watch this. I'm not watching this. Why would I watch this? This has nothing to do with what we want to be about. So God help us as we're learning to deny ourselves of anything that would distract us from loving him, honoring him. Number seven, hopefully we're delighting in God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. We've been talking about that, right? The joy of the Lord, that his joy, that when we're in his presence, we have fullness of joy and that his joy is in us. We have the joy of Christ as Christians. And so thank God that he helps us with our part of sanctification. And by the way, all of this boils down to the end of 16 and 17. Why is it that we should bear fruit, fruit that should abide? Well, number one, two, re two last reasons and we'll close. Number one, it's not in your notes, sorry. But number one is, when you act like that, bearing the fruit that God's called you to, then he says what? Whatever you ask the Father, in my name, he will give to you. Listen to me. Answered prayers are conditional. You cannot expect God to answer your prayers if you're living in open, unrepentant sin. Whenever your prayers are not being answered, you need to check yourself to say, you know what, am I bearing fruit? consistent with the word of God day in and day out, because if I am, Jesus says, whatever the father, whatever I ask the father in my name, he will give to me, give to you. And then verse 17, a second reason we should be bearing fruit is these things I command you so that you will love one another. So he's saying, hey, part of the way that you love one another is bearing fruit in your Christian walk. If you're bundling with bursting forth with fruit in your Christian life, you can't help but that to be the part of you loving one another because the two go hand in hand. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm bearing lots of fruit, but man, I'm having conflict with everybody around me. No, when you're bearing fruit, you will be loving one another. And so I hope that you've learned from this message today that God's chosen you. If you're in Christ, he chose you before the foundation of the world, and he chose you that you and I would bear fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that abides, so that we could both have our prayers answered and that we could truly love one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us ample time today to look at maybe the two most important doctrines of the Bible, salvation and sanctification. And Lord, in no way did we want to minimize the fact that you chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And yet we do acknowledge as human beings that sometimes that can be a little hard to wrap our little brains around. So thank you for making it clear in Scripture here in John 15, 16, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, so many places in the Bible, so clear, Lord, that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. As your chosen ones, Lord, would you help us to see that you've called us to bear fruit, that you've called us to walk blamelessly before you, that you've called us to be holy, that you've called us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. And so I pray, God, that from the clarity 
of the teaching of Christ to his disciples on his last night before he was abducted in the garden, that we would be greatly encouraged today that you have chosen us and that none of us are going to be a bust. All of us are going to be able to perform on the field just in the way that you empower us and enable us and that you've called us to do surefire to win a Super Bowl in the sense of the greatest thing we could ever imagine is true because of Christ, because of Christ who chose us and because of Christ who helps us walk the walk of life in a way that would excel with true spiritual prosperity and success and that on that final day when Christ returns, you will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so God, our hearts yearn and we ache to love you and to walk with you and that we would bear the kind of fruit that you are at work together with us to bear in and throughout our lives. God, help this to be evident in our marriages, in our families, at work, at school, in this community, that we would be those who know and that we've been humbled by the fact we've been chosen by you in order that we would bear much fruit. Do that in us for your glory, we pray in Jesus.